Hi, Greg. Hey, Dr. Allender, how are you? Uh, I'm well, thank you. I appreciate you taking time to visit with us here on the podcast. I've um, been familiar with the work, your work a long time, and I got reminded, uh, had a friend, Steve Brown, on this week's podcast, and I was looking at some of his stuff and remembered he had done a video podcast for you a couple of years ago, I think, and that Absolutely. reminded me that I needed to get you on the list. Well, I'm, I'm honored to be with a man like Steve. Oh, He's, what, what uh, a great guy. What a great guy. He, He's a little daft, but lovely. Well, that's the kind of mentor I needed was a daft one. So. Absolutely. <laughs> well, what I'm going to do, I'm going to do the formal sort of, you know, curricula vita kind of stuff in the post-production thing. But I'm just going to introduce you. And I'm going to, if any point you want to stop, uh, say I need a minute to think about that. Or if some question you just don't want to answer, just say I don't want to answer that. And I'll stop it and edit that out. And we'll go from there. The idea I started this was um, to get some voices that are important that can talk about faith and hope and what's real going on in the world. And, um, I did it uh, initially really just for myself as much as anything else. So, but, um, like I said, I'm familiar with your stuff from way back. I think, I, I think you were at a cornerstone festival way back in after the wounded heart, but I'm trying to remember that was a long time ago. Oh, uh, you know, I couldn't tell you what I had for dinner last night. <laughs> Short-term memory, but the long-term's good, huh? <laughs> no, I, I I would say both seem to be affected by the reality of sin, death, and decay. I, I can I can understand that. Yeah, my, you know, you, you get you. When I was like I, I always joke with my friends. You know, when when you were born, when Eisenhower was president, that's about all you can remember at this point. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's kind of where I am too. Well, I'm going to do just a, like a paragraph introduction, and we'll just jump right in because I know you've got stuff to do, and uh, then we'll we'll go from there. I'm going to kind of cover a lot of territory. So, like I said, at any point, you say, "Hey, let me think about that a second, or let's talk about something else. I'll just stop it there and pick it up there again. Perfect. All right. Dr. Dan Allender is the founder of the Allender Center at the Seattle School of Psychology and Theology, where it is stated that story is the heartbeat of God, the primary form of revealing who we are, who God is, and how the world is broken, and how God intends to restore us and the world. And I understand one of your school's goals is to train more leaders to understand this concept. First of all, why is the concept of telling someone's story so important? Well, uh, in, in many ways, Greg, the way we think the way we engage the world as we actually um, go through the process of relating to other human beings, facts are always embedded in a larger narrative. There's no such thing as a brute fact without a larger narrative giving that so-called fact meaning. So in one sense, we can't think, we can't even remember details or, um, or brute facts without a larger narrative. And so in that sense, we can't really engage our life or anyone's life without an awareness of the fact that we're in a story, we're telling stories, and at least in my deeper conviction, we're, we're revealing stories. Well, how do we discover what that story is and what our part in it is? Well, it, it, maybe it's as painful as this. Uh, you're never going to notice unless you begin to ponder. And a very keen sense in which I don't believe we can see our own face. You can look in a mirror, but you, you already have a judgment against your face. You already have a bias. And most of the time, the bias is not a very positive one. So in that sense, we need not only to ponder, but we need to ponder our story in the presence of another who can reveal our face to us, our story to us. So even though you lived your story, 
more often than not, you need an, uh, a, a story guide that's asking questions, uh, looking for the gaps, contradictions, and in many ways, the themes to a story. I think in some ways, we're, we're too close to the trees to see the forest. And as a result, we don't really see our lives as a larger narrative. Well, how, how would you find a story guide? That's kind of a dangerous thing to put yourself in that position, isn't it? Well, I, I hope you married one. Um, I hope your best friend is one. Uh, I hope the people that you interact with in a normal context actually are not just telling stories at the level of, you know, I went to the to show the other day or I went to Europe the other last year. Uh, I mean, we often have stories that are frankly fairly tedious to hear because Oh, they might be interesting, but they don't have much meaning. So I would hope the very central core people who love you and who are engaging you are fascinated, truly fascinated by who you are in the past, who you intend to be in the future, and therefore are reading you in the present to be able to give you a sense of who that face is, who that story is that they encounter in their normal interactions with you. Indeed, there are other story guides. Uh, I, as a therapist, I think of myself more than a psychological fixer. Uh, I think of myself as somebody who is intrigued enough to walk with you on those paths that you may have forgotten or not saw as particularly relevant, but uh, nonetheless, uh, open the door to the heart of what it is that your life is most about. And so the, the kind of people you were just describing, are, are those the kind of folks who have helped you discover your story? Are you still, I guess it's one of these things you're still discovering. You don't just discover your story, it, it continues, right? Oh, I think that's a brilliant and such an important point. I don't think I don't think anyone can be finished because there are new things being revealed day by day, week by week, that actually open clarity to be able to see things you thought you understood about your life, but now you see in a whole different framework. In other words, it's it's a it's really a conversation we're having about hermeneutics. How do we read? How do we read a newspaper? How do we read, uh, you know, President-elect Trump? How do we read uh, our own story? How do we read it well enough to be able to see how our story intersects with the lives of the people that we're with? So that's why I go back to that point of whoever you are partnered with, um, if they're not a story guide to you, curious, intrigued, fascinated by who you were, who you are and who you will be, that's already a relationship of, of convenience that does not have the sufficient depth to actually call you to become more than who you already are. And I guess one of these is to measure, not measure in the sense of some sort of linear measurement, but to, to look at how we're growing. I know one of the things I run into a lot of people, you and I are roughly the same age, uh, that particularly people of faith, they began to think, well, this is not the way I believe this or what I thought 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And sometimes they're concerned that they've shifted and lost their faith and not just that they've grown. Well, the intersection of doubt and conviction. Uh, we live in an era in which the story is to have conviction means you're dogmatic, uh, which means that you're, you're not open to even deeper understanding. Uh, and in some sense, uh, I, I think that's a, a byproduct of a post-evangelical, post-post-modern world where everything must be held with a certain level of intense suspicion. But when we actually go, no, we're, we're such a framework. 
uh, of trust uh, and mistrust, uh, of doubt and conviction, that when we hold the complexity of our belief systems honestly before us, we were doubting before. Uh, and now we may not be doubting where we were, but we're also doubting other core things that, in some sense, if you don't struggle with, I don't know how your story has been lived to actually create that intersection of faith and doubt. Well, talking about faith and doubt, there's a lot being written. I think this is a new wave. It's certainly cyclical, but there's a lot being written about the idea of certainty is an idol or the idea of I've got to be right. How does this drive to be right uh, and to move others into that wrong category impact our life story? Well, I, you know, again, uh, as a psychologist, I look at things uh, narrowly at times and broadly with regard to, to our world, but oftentimes projection, which is a classic psychological word, we see in others what we fear in ourselves. And when we see people living a life that we, in many ways, shake some of our core convictions, uh, it, it's easy to other them, to see them as not just wrong, but almost inhuman. We, we create enemies of those who, in many ways, challenge the core convictions of our lives, rather than actually being able to befriend people who are utterly different than us because they do open us, I hope, to new doubt, but also new clarity about the convictions that we actually hold. Well, and I guess that moves me into the next, uh, the idea that the Bible is primarily a book of stories. I mean, it's, it's, it's explaining how God has chosen to deal with man. I mean, how, how does that play into us finding our own stories as people of faith? Well, I, you know, uh, my best friend, Tremper Longman III, would say that the, the, the scriptures are 70% story, 70% story. So as we come to a story like Samson and Delilah, uh, as we come to stories of David and Bathsheba, you know, we've got something to learn that could be called principle or principalized. But overall, we have a really difficult time interpreting scripture if we do not submit our life to the reality of story. Uh, and that is, it, it, it's progressive, it does not end, it doesn't give you all the data that you wish, and much of the scripture is not about trying to teach us what to do or what not to do. It's inviting us into the mystery, playfulness, complexity uh, of, of the human condition, and as well, God's engagement with it. And so in that sense, you've got an arc. You've got a biblical theme and arc to redemptive uh, story, uh, and that is the work of redemption through Jesus. From my vantage point, that's the core of understanding not only the story of Scripture, but ultimately our own story. In that sense, we've got to read our story Christologically in order to be able to read literally uh, this last past election, uh, the uncertainty of how we're going to handle our own health care into our senior years. I mean, there's not, a, there's not a story of our life that we don't have to think about with regard to the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the ascension of Jesus. And there's certainly more to the life of Jesus than just those th three simple uh, uh, narrative points, but it's no less than that. I've got to think about how I'm going to engage decay and death, how I'm going to live in the face of resurrection, how I'm going to live out the already current reality of the ascension. As I live past future, present, um, I, I've got categories then to 
interpret my own life as well as to interpret the world around me. Except for that last part where you're talking about Jesus and even to that to some degree, that, that thought stream seems to be running counter to sort of American evangelicalism that, that, that's still steeped in everything from we've got to be right about all this, we've got to have a Chicago Council on Inerrancy, and uh, we have to start with hell and work our way back to Jesus or people are going to get away with something. Oh, yeah. I, you know, in some ways, uh, I, I would gladly, uh, I mean gladly, call myself an evangelical. I have no problem with that word uh, as long as it is, again, heard in its meaning of, 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 of one who's caught up with, uh, captured by good news. Now, how the word gets used in our culture, uh, I won't use words that would be, for many listeners' ears, quite um, distressing. Uh, but there's a way of reclaiming words rather than eschewing them. Uh, and I'd rather live with the um, complexity of that word and how it's misinterpreted in our larger culture. I live in Seattle, where 1.2% of people attend any religious service at all. That's the lowest in the whole nation. Uh, so in that sense, I love being able to say to people, uh, you know, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah. Well, are you evangelical? The answer is absolutely. Really? Well, in their disbelief and credulity and fundamentally contempt, we begin to explore together well, what does that word mean? What does it not mean? Uh, and no, I don't think it's a approach to politics. No, I don't think it's an approach to power uh, in our culture. In that sense, when people begin to understand that at the very core, it's a disruption uh, of the very nature uh, of how we go about trying to find finality, closure, and in many ways, control and power in our world. Uh, so that that's one of the natures of a story. A story doesn't close the door uh, to meaning. That story can be interpreted again and again and again and again from different era, different lives, different perspectives. Uh, and that's why I think story, again, becomes so important to bring back to your point. The Bible is 70% story. And if you as an evangelical or, or not want to engage the life of God, You've got to be in the intersection of the lives of the people around you, your own life, and the life of Scripture, the life of Jesus, in a way in which you've got, in some ways, an interpretive overlap that's beyond anyone's hermeneutical ability. Yeah, and I think, uh, and to me, I'm trying to learn as we talk. I mean, I've spent my life as a writer, so story's been important to me. Of course, when I think story, too, I start thinking semantics. And I know a lot of people now, and depending on who I'm with, including myself, when somebody even... It passes the evangelical thing and says, are you a Christian? I say, "What? it depends on what you mean by that, because people are so confused by the definition culturally now that it does open some dialogue if you, you instead of saying yes, I just say, it depends on what you mean by that. Yep, I, I, I respect that and honor it. Uh, it's always the context. You know, in a world like Seattle, uh, anytime that there's any kind of spiritual discussion um, we're in the thicket of, of, of the culture's contempt uh, and disregard for what they understand Christians to be. And I find that to be an exciting world to be in. You know, as, as long as you're not bound by shame, as long as you don't need to defend, and as long as you're open curiously to the convictions of other people, um, the opportunity to be in the gospel with others, uh, I think, is that we live in a choice era um, where it is so 
easy uh, to have meaningful conversations uh, about life, about God, about existence. Uh, I, I feel like I'm living uh, like a, a, a chocoholic in a candy store. I kind of understand that. I lived for a while out in Marin County, California, and it was very similar in, to what you're talking about there. But now, I mean, I'm a product of multi-generations. I live in the Deep South where discussions of religion still have a penchant to start with hell. They, they seem to really have this, this real fetish about hell that has to start with hell, and we'll try to work our way back to Jesus. What, what do you see as the essence of the gospel? Because what we're talking about here, what do you see as the essence of the gospel? Well, it, it, you know, in one sense, it's a beautiful question that defies a, a very satisfactory answer. <laughs> uh, in, in that, you know, the, the gospel is really about Jesus. Well, what about Jesus? Well, uh, that uh, he came to this earth unlike any of us, uh, that, that his trajectory of life uh, was an exploration of a call that he understood to a father that was more intimate uh, and, in one sense, more eternal than was, uh, any of us have experienced. So the reality of death, resurrection, ascension is where, again, I would capture it, it's a story of engagement with shame. It's a story of the anticipation of goodness promised by God that he would not remain in the grave, that his bones would not be broken, that there would be a restoration. So when we talk about the gospel, it's am I bound to shame? To the degree I am, uh, the essential gospel has not been entered into my life. To the degree that I am not wildly hopeful, and again, not defined by Hallmark card, uh, hope defined as um, nothing in this earth will ever satisfy. Therefore, there must be a coming of restoration that is a promise lived with enough anticipation that I'm not bound to the reality of what death I see around me. So if death and resurrection are true, then in one sense, the ascension is I get to dwell from eternity, meaning now, at the right hand of the Father, and that I have been given, disposed by Jesus, a kingdom that I'm meant to rule in that will be linked to his kingdom. So do you see, it's, it's, the gospel is kingdom, but the gospel is a, a kind of wild, um, renegade hope, uh, and the gospel is that shame has no power, sin and death, therefore named in that deeply personal category, Shame has no bound bondage over me, in which case then um, the essential portion of the gospel is he has lived a story I am meant to take into the very deepest recesses of my own life and to link my story to. How does that approach shape your day-to-day -day life, how you live every day? Well, I, I spend my day, most of my days, talking with people uh, as a therapist, as a uh, basically a professor trainer of, of young students making their way into becoming therapists. So I, I live my world sort of in the therapeutic realm where the intersection of past, present, future, past, future, present becomes really the dialogue of, of my day. So I would say I, I get the privilege of not being part of many meetings. I don't do anything essentially productive. Uh, I, I'm not making things, so to speak. Uh, I, I don't really work. Well, I do sell things, but uh, I sell ideas. So in that sense, uh, as an academic, but a therapeutically oriented academic, 
um, I get to spend my days constantly uh, engaging students, uh, clients with regard to the issues of shame, where trauma has bound their hearts uh, to a way of hermeneutically looking at their own life, life itself, and the life of others with a kind of um, violation mentality, contemptuous mentality of themselves and others, I get to be part of disrupting that. And I get to be part of a natural inclination to hope. But given trauma in most people's lives, there's a deep hatred of hope. So in that sense, I get to be part uh, of not so much creating hope, but but unleashing hope that's been blocked by one's own self-hatred and fear. Uh, and then the privilege of living out the ascension uh, is helping people own their power, own the gifts, talents uh, that they've been given to be able to live out the kingdom uh, that they have been, in some sense, uh, not just assigned to, but disposed for. Uh, I, that, you know, who gets to live a life like that? I, I really do think of myself as uh, a non- financially oriented billionaire. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just a rich man to get to play in this domain as a, a framework of pretty much my daily work. You've mentioned this word several times. Uh, explain to me a little bit about what you mean when you talk about shame being a powerful thing and why shame, what, what shame is and why it's so powerful. Well, my, my primary work is with trauma. and uh, Most of my work comes primarily through the lens of sexual abuse. And so when I think about the reality of what most people live, uh, sexual abuse is a phenomena that is so much more part of people's lives than, than they've been able to acknowledge. Uh, just even the issue of, like, when's your, what, what was your first experiences with pornography? Um, seldom do you just happen upon pornography. Uh, usually it is a social phenomena where you're introduced to it, at least initially, by um, older boys or boys the same age or girls the same age um, who have had access before. It's a grooming process that takes you into your first sexual encounter, and that encounter I would call um, uh, sexually abusive. Uh, and so most uh, uh, entry into pornography is a form of abuse. So when you start looking at the figures uh, very conservatively, um, we talk about one out of three men uh, and about, mm, well, one out of three women and about one out of four men. Uh, when you look at less uh, bound figures, it's really 50, 55, 50 to 60% women and about 40% men have histories of, of past sexual abuse. So when you talk about shame, it's that sense of something being exposed, which feels ugly, which feels hideous, uh, toxic, violating, uh, and uh, must be hidden uh, and must be escaped from. Uh, and so what, what, what holds for most of us is that our sexuality, usually traumatized uh, in a deeply fallen world, bears this intersection of having been victimized but also aroused, felt some level of pleasure in that arousal, and yet also some level of disgust. So when you've got that happening in a four-year-old, eight-year-old, 12-year-old, 18-year-old, um, you're going to have what I'm putting words to as the experience of shame. So you, when you define sexual abuse, it's, pretty, it's a pretty broad definition. It's not just what many people would think of uh, in terms of child sexual abuse or 
those kind of things. You're saying that exposure to pornography or just anything that made somebody uncomfortable sexually, is that what you're saying, is sexual uh, abuse? No, I'd, I would say a little bit more intense than that, and that is, you know, your father leaves pornography uh, in the bathroom. Uh, you know, he may not have intended uh, to arouse you, but two plus two would have said anyone knows that a four-year-old, eight-year-old, 12-year-old is going to pick that up and metabolize those those images uh, erotically, um, you know, so in the same way that a parent uh, is unclothed as she walks between uh, the bathroom and her bedroom um, regularly, um, you know, as a mother does that, uh, what I would say is that's more than making the child uncomfortable. It's presenting sexual images in erotic context, which even unconsciously is an inv invitation into a darker uh, erotic relationship with that parent or with that person. So in that sense, uh, I am saying sexual abuse, child sexual abuse is way more common because it doesn't have to have physical touch for an event to be sexually abusive. So some people may have some deep trauma that they may not even really recognize as being from those sorts of things. Is that correct? Oh, I, I, I would say it's the average. Uh, I mean, I've worked with people. I, I work with a sexual crimes detective who told me about uh, her uncle uh, who molested her at age 12. And as she described what he had done, uh, it was clearly sexually abusive. And I said to you, I said to her, um, uh, you know, your uncle abu sexually abused you. Uh, and uh, she looked at me and said, he didn't sexually abuse me. And I said, um, you said that he molested you. Well, yeah, but he didn't sexually abuse me. And I said, well, help me know what, what's your definition of sexual abuse? Well, he'd never penetrated me digitally or penially. What? You're a sex crimes detective, and your understanding is that it's sexual abuse is only when there is um, penetration? Uh, that's ridiculous. So the shame that's there for all of us with regard to coming into our own sexual experiences make it such that we, I would say in the realm of like 90%, discount events, call them weird or inappropriate or should never have happened or he was a dirty old man, uh, but we don't have the ability to actually name this was sexually abusive and it brings a realm of shame to my body, heart, and mind that that trauma somehow can't yet be addressed. And so it has to be ignored, denied, and covered over. So going back to your phrase, oh yeah, there are plenty of people, and especially men, plenty of people who've been traumatized, but they have not had the courage to name it yet they're living it out in their use of pornography. They're living it out with sexual fantasies that ought to indicate to them there's something going on in their life that goes well beyond just having sexual struggles, but actually having sexual trauma. And that trauma could include uh, peers that may have been more sexually active or sexually aware than they were uh, perpetrating abuse. Is that? Totally so. Uh, I mean, 
we often think that abuse has to be between somebody uh, significantly older. So uh, a child is abused by someone 10 to 15 years older, and certainly that occurs commonly. Uh, but abuse can occur where there's a younger abuser. Uh, you know, I've worked with plenty of people uh, who are abused by a six-year-old and they were seven or eight years of age. Well, the six-year-old had likely been abused and had knowledge and set grooming processes up to entangle that child, uh, involve them in sexual activity, which then they later call, well, just, you know, children do do sexual play, no big deal, just sort of universalize it, pass it away. That's how much we are so adverse to engaging trauma and shame and the effects of it in, in the cascading effect of decades ahead. Well, yeah, just I'm glad you mentioned that because I know particularly uh, historically in in faith-based circles, the people get squeamish to even talk about it, much less have to deal with it. Oh. And um, you, you were sort of working in the field, particularly in in the field, and you we know, were dealing dealing with people of faith, you know, 25, 30 years ago. What what have you learned since you wrote the Wounded Heart? What what kind of things have you learned that you wish you had known when you written you wrote that book? Well, you know, in some ways, maybe it's as simple as some of our earlier discussion. I, I just wish I had known the Lord better. I, I wish I'd loved him more. I wish, uh, you know, especially in those years of, of, of not only writing a book, but crafting a career, uh, you know, doing the work of getting known enough in your own field to be able to have an audience. Uh, you know, there's so much early pressure uh, that, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, maybe the most personal way of putting it is, um, I, I, yes, it was my life and work and career, uh, but in some ways, it kept me from actually addressing some of the issues of abuse in my own life. I mean, when I wrote The Wounded Heart, I had not even named that I had been sexually abused. Uh, it was a dear friend who came to one of my conferences, afterwards sat with me and asked me uh, questions that had been asked before, but I had never addressed the way that he invited me to address. And uh, as I finished The Wounded Heart, I began to address more uh, the intersection with my own abuse. So there were, you know, writing the book, working through the implications for others, I kind of left myself behind, uh, which is not an unusual thing to do for those in some form of ministry. Mm -hmm. So that would be one thing, uh, is I wish I'd had the integrity to have indeed taken some very, very important things I wrote uh, into my own life. Uh, and certainly through the years, uh, Becky, my wife, uh, has been profoundly important in reading me. So when we go back to the early part of our conversation, Becky has been the one who's been the interpreter of my face, my story, uh, and she has been the one to hear stories and then draw uh, forth the implications and to be the one to name, well, your mother sexually abused you here. Uh, and as I retort back to her, no, she didn't touch me. And I'm like, well, do you need to be touched to be sexually abused? Well, no, but th it wasn't her intent. Well, does it have to have <clears throat> intent in order for there to have been abuse? Uh, no. Uh, you know, I've been caught by Becky many times to a point of, of having my story re-ingested, re-digested into my own world. So that'd be one thing. But I think a second is uh, it took so many years for me to actually believe uh, that evil uh, as an unseen present force 
working to accomplish uh, dark ends for the kingdom of darkness uh, actually is an important factor to take into account in our conversation about our story. Uh, for many, many Christians, we're so afraid of being viewed as being weird or weirder uh, that the idea that the kingdom of darkness exists, that there is something called evil that is beyond a mere force, uh, a mere uh, kind of compilation of human evil taken to an extreme, uh, but actually an intentional entity working to my harm. I wish I had been – I, I believe they existed. It existed. Uh, but I didn't literally allow it to account for part of the process of dealing with harm and therefore redemption. Um, I wish I had been wish I had been uh, with more integrity at that time early on in my career uh, to have been able to name that. Well, that's interesting. I had not thought much about uh, that question, but uh, the idea of of, a, of an aggressive, active, evil, dark force. What what's the genesis of that? I mean, were we talking? I mean, we're talking about Satan, or are we talking about? Oh, sure we are. <clears throat> um, but in that sense, we're, we're talking about a demonic realm that means to kill, means to destroy. Uh, it means to, in many ways, thief. And as I've tried to ponder this as well as I can within the realm of trauma that I've been working on, you know, I, I do see evil working to steal innocence through any means possible. And sexuality, even at a pre precocious young age, um, is where a great deal of the theft of innocence begins to occur. Uh, and it's desire to kill. Oh, my gosh. D destroy innocence, you lose a sense of futurity that is good. So the killing of hope, the hate, learning to hate hope, the risk of really engaging hope, um, I, I do believe evil uh, is working against every human heart uh, to ruin innocence and to kill hope. But not just that, to mar the beauty of the human face, mar the beauty of, of, of the human story. Um, wow, that's where I believe its primary agency is through shame and contempt. I mean, the name Satan is the name accuser. And I think most accusations are framed out of disdain, out of cynicism, out of contempt. Uh, and wherever you have shame, you have the violence of contempt against oneself or against others. So in that sense, we're always pressing and knocking against uh, what is our story leading us to with regard to the engagement of where evil has wor worked very hard to ruin your capacity to be as a child? You think how often Jesus spoke about coming to him as a child. And certainly we know in, in the New Testament era, a child was not a lovely thing. A child was dependent uh, literally, a nuisance, something uh, to be controlled, just slightly less uh, uh, valuable than even a woman. So in that sense, uh, it is a category of weakness, category of dependency, but in that sense uh, of innocence without defilement in the way that we would know. So in that light, uh, yeah, I think evil is very active, uh, active in every human life. And following that is... In the years you've been involved in this, uh, do you think that uh, sexual abuse is more widespread or just more recognized, acknowledged, dealt with uh, than it has been in years gone by? 
Well, I address that a little bit more comprehensively in the new book that I wrote called Healing uh, the Wounded Heart. Uh, it's about a 25-year retrospective uh, on the work that I originally did 25 years ago. Um, and actually, the data would seem to indicate that with regard to what we know as child sexual abuse, with narrow, narrow definition uh, of, of what constitutes child abuse, uh, because uh, in, in most research definitions, uh, categories of interaction versus touch uh, are, are not considered sexually abusive. So with that, what I would say is we've seen a decrease over the last 25 years. However, uh, the indication would also be that uh, abuse between, for example, a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old, uh, abuse where uh, we'll use the term like date rape, um, where violence against a, a person using sexualized means has actually increased. Sexual bullying, uh, harassment has increased. So I think what we've seen is a, a decrease with children in some places and forms, and yet an increase across abuse, uh, sexting, uh, uh, online uh, chat rooms, um, those are far harder to do research on, and yet we know the increase within those realms uh, have, have been drastic. With the, with the numbers that are there, and, and, and you work with people constantly, you were talking about that earlier, um, how have you seen people led from those places of darkness into hope and light? Oh, it's such a crucial question. And, you know, in, in some ways uh, it will sound very self-serving, but I don't know how else to, to name this. You, you need you need information. You cannot change what you don't have the courage to name. So the effects of sexual abuse are going to remain in someone's life. Well, it's one of the things we found out uh, about trauma over the last 25 years. It, it doesn't go away by time. In many ways, it actually intensifies over time. So we've got to have the courage to disrupt the neural pathways that have come to manage the, the kind of harm of past sexual abuse and other forms of trauma. We've got to have the courage to name and engage. And what we find, the research has indicated this, is that we really literally can change our brains. Our neural pathways are, are not in concrete. They really are malleable. There is plasticity, but you have to enter the story and allow, <clears throat> excuse me, what has happened to deeply affect you. In other words, you can't just know it. You must allow your body, your heart, your very being to enter into grief to enter into anger. And that doesn't happen alone in private in the context of your so-called prayer chamber. It has to be in a relationship. That's what I meant earlier about a um, <coughs> story guide, somebody who can help you, invite you to name things that you, your bias and your hermeneutical stance wants to sort of erase or minimize or mitigate we need to we need to disrupt. That's where story engagement becomes a means of disrupting something of those neural pathways that when we begin to then allow reordering, uh, allows our hearts to begin to physically, literally change. So naming, engaging, uh, grieving, uh, being in a position where uh, you're you're being walked through a process. Uh, we, we created uh, a sort of a companion to Healing the Wounded Heart, an online course that basically walks people through the same material uh, but takes them through uh, individual lives. Uh, we've got 
very honest men and women sharing something of the nature of their own life, and then seeing how your story connects to another person's story literally becomes like reading fiction. It becomes a means of entering another world that allows you to begin to see your own world with greater clarity. All that's necessary for significant change to occur. So people can come to your website and work through these things if they're in a place where maybe they don't have the professional help that can do it. Is that a fair? Again, I would never want, I I mean, I would rather have a person any day, uh, not read a book, not go to a video, uh, but to be face to face, but even face to face, we need ongoing data. We need the concert uh, of many lives literally singing to us of the heartache of trauma, but also the hope of redemption. So in that sense, the online course that we offer through uh, the Allender Center uh, opens the door to a conversation, but is not, again, meant to be one that you have with a videotape. It's meant to be one that you engage uh, through that kind of film and then begin the process of having conversation with your partner, uh, with a dear friend, with a prayer partner, uh, with a pastor, with a therapist, so that we're engaging the larger world of meaning as we deal with the particularities of our own past trauma. And, and one of the, the characteristics of your center, you do training for people to help guide people through this. Is that right? Yeah, we do. We, we, we have a, a track for people who are involved in leadership in their church that we just call a lay training process. Uh, we've got a process for people who are involved as you know, significant uh, thought leaders in the context of the church um, who have had more training uh, and therapists, uh, basically trying to engage everybody naming the reality of trauma and engaging how story intersects with story, how my story of trauma intersects with your story. Even though we may have very different stories, we fundamentally know that evil has been working against us to the same end, uh, to kill uh, to, to, to ruin and indeed to steal. We know that. So if we're a- allowed to engage our own story with honesty, we'll find so much overlap between our worlds of shame and heartache, our own contempt for ourselves and others. But as well, that seems to plow the ground for the seed of the gospel uh, to flourish so much more deeply than in sort of the uh, anonymity of, I don't know your life, you don't know my life, but you look pretty competent. I look pretty competent. Uh, and so God be with you. God be with you. Um, until we're broken together, uh, I don't think we're really ever really healed together. And I think that that is a giant step because there, I mean, we've, we've both heard so many stories of people getting so much bad counsel about abuse, especially from the church. So having people who are trained is, is a pretty big deal. Well, it, open, it opens up conversation, and, and that that may seem very small, but the ability to sit with another human being and to hear a sentence like, well, I had a weird uncle, uh, and to know well, the weird, word weird uh, is often a code word for um, sexually inappropriate, violating, or abusive. Uh, and so to be able to go weird, I mean, just to say to the other person, weird? Yeah, I mean, he was sort of inappropriate. Uh, I mean, again, now we're a little stronger. And then to be able to say, you know, I'm not sure how comfortable you would be in naming uh, the nature of that inappropriateness. Uh, But I can tell you uh, that often the word inappropriate means that boundaries have been crossed of honor uh, and respect. 
and therefore there is a sense of there's a trauma there's some violation i don't know if you want to step into it but you've already given me enough data to know uh something has gone on that was harmful to you you see that's happening so often in our conversations words are being left before us that we don't know what to do with because we're not even trained to hear them but if we even have a sense that there's something there we feel awkward, confused, we don't know what to do. And part of the answer is, well, did you know what to do with your adolescence? Uh, did you know what to do with your 14-year-old daughter? No, you didn't, but you, saw, you hung in there and engaged. And that's the same thing that needs to happen as we engage people's stories, because it's in story that the gospel comes to have meaning. And if we're not in people's stories, uh, we're not in the realm where anything really profitable for eternity can happen. And I think that's a valuable resource. Like I said, I, I do think one of the challenges people have faced is finding a safe person to talk to about finding a kind of healing or hope. And uh, it's not available everywhere, unfortunately. So it is. I, 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 again, it's one of those great tragedies. I think there are there are therapists probably on every corner uh, of every road uh, in the world, at least in Seattle. I think there are more therapists than there are people uh, in the city. Uh, but uh, you know, other than that, the fact is, uh, people that you really know have, have walked the path before you. You know, I don't care if they have a degree. Um, some of the people I turn to, particularly in my church, uh, a man who has spent his life as a blue-collar worker, uh, but he has suffered, uh, and he's not turned to trite, simple answers. Yet he has a very strong, simple faith. Uh, and so being able to interact with a man who really knows how to ask good, hard questions is not uncomfortable with human suffering and therefore has the ability to step into my heart, it's invaluable. Uh, so that's who we're meant to be, and that's how we live out the gospel. Has, has the cultural shift in the last 25 years towards I don't, uh, sometimes it's even called confusion over sexual identity created greater challenges or is it just another factor? Is the problem not related to gender or? Oh, I think it is entirely. It's a huge category. Uh, we could spend literally another hour just on that to be able to say, you know, you, and what do you have in the beginning of Genesis? In the image of God, he made them male and female. Um, and yet Jesus talks in Matthew 19 about a third sex. Uh, uh, called eunuchs, uh, and we don't really understand what eunuchs are. We, we think of them as buff men uh, who basically don't have genitals. Uh, well, that's not true. Um, they were a third sex, uh, made by God, made by man, uh, and uh, as the scripture says, as Jesus says, this is a category that not many people would want. So as we begin to think about gender, um, yeah, male and female, but Jesus accounts for a third gender. How does that begin to allow us to talk about intersex, uh, where a person's born uh, what we would have used to have called a hermaphrodite, um, with sexuality of, of both genders? Um, what do we do with the sense that there are many people who do not fit stereotypical categories of male or female, um, and yet uh, they would say that they are a male or a female? I, I, this is a huge discussion that our era is forcing us to have, and for the most part, uh, Christians are very ill-disposed to know how to engage uh, other than to be reactionary and highly dogmatic. 
shifting topics a little bit, I wanted to make sure I got this in. Don't want to spend too much time talking about it, but I know you've been involved in helping battle human trafficking. How did you get involved in that? Oh, a sweet long story, and I'll just say it very quickly. Uh, our daughter got arrested for having alcohol in her car, ended up uh, being in a position where uh, she had to do community service. She ended up going to Russia, to Siberia, um, and uh, did That's some serious <laughs> community service there. <laughs> yeah, well, she chose it. Uh, and, uh, uh, she ended up doing nine weeks uh, of 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 caregiving uh, in Siberia. Came back alive and aware of human trafficking uh, in about the year two thousand two, and uh, asked me very directly, "What are you planning to do about this?" You know, and I told her uh, fundamentally nothing because I already do my work. I've got my calling. I don't need to add more. But she got my wife very interested. And as Becky got involved, uh, she began knocking on my door. Uh, and I had the same reaction to her that I had to our daughter, Amanda. And, uh, but over seasons, uh, she basically got me invited to a, co a conference as a plenary speaker, uh, on, in human trafficking. And I presented on shame and abuse. And uh, all of a sudden I'm, I'm in it. Literally. I, I think my wife, um, basically pressured me in it, uh, and I got to meet the people, many of them who had been trafficked, rescued, really redeemed, uh, and then brought into the work. And as I got to know them, uh, some of the finest people I've ever met on the face of the earth. And all of a sudden, uh, I wouldn't say my work is highly involved, but uh, we're very supportive of a group called ICAP, International Christian Alliance on Prostitution, uh, that has a international conference uh, in Wisconsin every three years coming up May of 2017. Uh, so it's a grassroots group um, that umbrellas hundreds and hundreds of ministries around the world uh, as supporting them financially, supporting them with training and, and care. Uh, it's, uh, it, it is a labor uh, that is uh, so dear to the heart of God. It's hard to imagine what it would be like in this world to not know God in the context of where his heart is so involved. And this country, it's a significant problem here. I, last, I think the last statistics I read, we were like maybe second in the world. In we are. Absolutely. Second, uh, and you go, there's not a city in this country. Uh, there's not a really a small burg in this country that does not have the presence of either labor or sexually trafficked human beings. So when you start looking at, at the phenomena, um, it is such a multi-billion, if not trillion dollar industry, uh, considered now to be the second largest business in the world, only second uh, still to uh, the sales of armaments. So it used to be uh, armaments, drugs, human trafficking. Uh, it's now armaments and uh, human trafficking. Uh, I have these last couple of questions or a few questions that are questions I've been asking all my guests. Uh, the first one, who are some of your biggest influences, people, books, other things? Well, I, I think uh, the people that I had the pleasure of going to seminary with were, were huge. Uh, my best friend, Tremper, uh, Scotty Smith, um, uh, Reggie Kidd. Uh, you know, in some worlds, these are well-known, remarkable men. Uh, they helped form in me a sense of integrity of approach of scripture commitment uh, to the life of god so I, I 
you know, early years, uh, kind of found myself in seminary, didn't really choose it, uh, certainly wasn't even likely a Christian when I began. Uh, but that formative period was a life-giving. And then in that context, uh, I, I had already begun reading uh, Kierkegaard. So I, I, I would say Augustine, uh, Kierkegaard, uh, were two of my most formative categories for understanding the human heart. Uh, and then, you know, the privilege of, as I said, uh, being in a relationship with many, many, many others who have been able to offer a taste of, this is what the gospel looks like when you go into human traffic in uh, Azerbaijan. Uh, I mean, people are risking their lives literally every day. Um, They transform your heart as you get to know them. So those would be some of my profound influencers. We talked about this in another context a little bit earlier, but I ask everybody this question as well. Who is Jesus? Well, uh, the first word is, uh, I love the phrase that John Eldridge uses, beautiful outlaw. Um, uh, someone you would never predict, someone you would never initially like, uh, somebody who disrupts and yet entices, uh, who invites you uh, and, uh, and, and acknowledges uh, the worst of life and the most beautiful. So uh, as the son of God, fully God, fully man, uh, unpredictable, uncontrollable, unmanageable, and almost undefinable other than through story, um, you know, in that sense, Lord and God. You work in such a serious field. Uh, what do you do to relax? What do you do to have fun? Well, I know this is going to sound obscene, particularly at the end uh, of, of a conversation, but um, my, my work is as full of laughter as it is tears. And that's one of the things about redemption uh, is that the horrendous harm uh, uh, creates a heart open to suffering. Uh, and we know this with regard to the neural pathways. You close down your heart to suffering, you close your heart down equally to joy. Uh, and so there is no way to know the joy of life outside of the realm of walking in the, in the places of the dark. Uh, and so if you want to know joy, uh, you've got to be willing to walk in the valley of the shadow of death. But uh, it, uh, and I would probably more uh, accurately say and, not but, but and, uh, I fly fish, uh, which is uh, a sport of utter frustration, uh, <laughs> which creates constant sorrow and humiliation, uh, and yet uh, always offers the opportunity to grow uh, and to improve. Uh, and yet that process takes you into uh, the sweet realm of mystery, uh, particularly in friendships. Uh, I, I never fly a fish with anyone who's competitive that needs to catch fish. Uh, the people I fish with celebrate, delight in every fish I've ever caught as I am theirs. So in that sense, when you fly fish with, with good fly fishermen, um, uh, it, it is a realm in which you're, you're, in the, uh, you're in the antechamber of what eternity itself will be. Just the metaphor is already built in there, isn't it? The la- you mentioned laughter. What is, are there particular people? Who or what makes you laugh? Well, Christopher Guest. Uh, comes <laughs> to mind. Okay. You know, well, you're of my tribe immediately when you say that. Well, I, I, all, all my children have watched uh, Best in Show 
probably in the realm of over 50 times. Uh, everyone in our family has at least two or three characters that we regularly uh, can play out. You know, we, we can do long episodes depending on how many of us are together. So, you know, studying scripture and and learning uh, the lines from Best in Show, Waiting for Guffman, Mighty Wind, uh, that, that's that's a prerequisite for, for being an Allender. Wow, that's a nice prerequisite, Dan. What what are you working on? What's next for you? What are you, are you got a new book? And- well, I, I, actually, what I'm I'm working on is my wife is writing a book, wow. uh, and so as she has spent literally a- almost 28 years. Uh, I mean, we've been married 40, but she's spent 28, 29 years with me writing. Uh, I'm getting this immense privilege to be the reader of her writing. Uh, I, I don't edit because uh, she's got an editor, uh, but I, right now uh, I'm a cheerleader, and it is a honorable. I don't look too well, uh, you know, in a dress, but nonetheless, uh, I, I have pom poms. I, I shout. Uh, I support um, my wife's writing, and and she's she's a good writer. I cannot wait to see what she creates over this coming year. Well, that's fantastic. Listen, Dan, I appreciate you. I know you're busy. I appreciate you taking time out to talk to us here on the Thinking God podcast. And Greg, we'll what a be privilege. Looking, we'll be what looking for. Questions. I'm sorry. And, uh, I, I said, what a privilege. What great questions. And, uh, you know, I hope somebody eventually turns around and spends an interview interviewing you on these same questions. I, I would. I, I, it's hard to be on that side of the, the mic. But, yeah, that would be great sometime. Thanks, Dan. Thank uh, you. One other thing, we're, I'm, I'm t- turning off the recording now. It's fun. Just I was going to mention since you mentioned the Guffman thing, a friend of mine who is in the, works in the industry out there sent me a timestamp copy of Guffman that has all these scenes that were deleted. It is hilarious. Oh, uh, so oh. Uh, yeah, he's he, he has a truck that's tricked out that he drives around in, and there's all these running gags with that. It's, it was really amazing. I wish they had released that version of it. Oh my gosh, that would have been <laughs> hilarious. <clears throat> Absolutely hilarious. If I thought I could get you. If I thought I could share it with you. I would do it if it didn't violate every, every, every legal. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I, just the knowledge of it is enough. Hey, I do appreciate you spending time with me. I enjoyed talking to you, man. And I appreciate your work, and I appreciate all you've done over the years to help a lot of folks. You really have. And um, thank you, thank you. And so, well, pleasure to have been with you. Great. You have a great holiday. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye bye.